Happy birthday, Chris, and happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. The trouble with the war, Millie Cushman thought, as she stared sulkily through steaming French windows into her rain-drenched garden, was that it was so frightfully boring. There weren't any men anymore. Interesting ones, that is. Or parties, or little pink cocktails, or Café Royale, or long-stemmed roses wrapped in crackly green wax paper. There wasn't even a decent hairdresser left. She had been a fool to stay on, but it had seemed so exciting. Everyone listening to the radio broadcasts, the streets blossoming with uniforms, an air of feverish gaiety, heady as a Moselle wine over all the city. The conversations that made one feel so important, so in the thick of things. Would the Maginot Line hold? Would the British come? Would the Low Countries be invaded? Was it true America had issued an ultimatum? Subjects that now were outdated as Gatling guns. It had been terrifically stimulating being asked for her opinion as an American. Of course, she hadn't been home for a number of years and considered herself a true cosmopolite, freed from the provincialities of her own country. But still, it had been nice in those first flurried jack-in-the-box days of the war to be able to discourse so intelligently on Americana. It had been such fun. Momentarily, Millie's eyes sparkled, remembering. The sparkle faded and died. Well, our sparkle hasn't faded and died. Get ready to be stimulated, folks, because we're two Americans with opinions. <laughs> and we're going to give them to you here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com, and I am Chris Lackey. I am Chad Pfeiffer. What was that we heard there at the top? That was the opening bit of Jane Rice's The Refugee, a story written after Lovecraft died. So, he never read it. At least not with living eyes. Nevertheless, we are going to cover it. Yes, because it is Werewolf History Month. All werewolves, all month. That's right. Not just a pack of werewolves. We're not pretending we're going to quit anymore, so we're getting a whole carton of werewolves. (laughs) And I can't think of a better birthday present than that. It's your birthday. Yay! Well, when we record this, it's not yet my birthday. But when the listeners hear it, it will be my birthday. I will be... That's right. The ripe old age of 43. Happy birthday, Chris. Thank you so much. And before we get started, I would really like folks to... Uh, go over to YouTube and type in From Beyond the Beyond and watch that video because Greg Johnson and myself and Reber Clark have made a new Lovecraft comedy video. They have, and it's amazing. It cracked me up. It looks great. Uh, It's really funny. I'm glad you guys are doing these, folks. Please go and support it because I'd like to see a a whole series of these things. I loved the last one, The Ordeal of Randolph Carter. From Beyond the Beyond is just as good. (laughs) Uh, Chris, you're awesome in it. Everybody needs to check it out. So go over to YouTube, type in From Beyond the Beyond, and feast your eyes on Greg Johnson and Christopher Lackey's second satirical Lovecraft short. Who was our lovely reader that we had at the beginning there? That was my lovely wife, Heather Klinky. She is a powerful voice, and I am so glad that she's a part of our show. Yes, I was glad she came in last minute and knocked it out of the park, as always. Thanks so much for reading. And this story, The Refugee, that we're covering today, was actually recommended to us by a listener, Yeah. even before we asked for werewolf stories. Carolyn Meikle wrote in and sent us a link to a site, a story of the week presented by Library of America. And The Refugee was a story of the week in 2011, so on that page it was there to read 
for free. Luckily, this Library of America page also had a preface with some background on the author and the publication of the story, which I will now quote liberally. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it had to say. Uh, the preface started off by talking about John W. Campbell, who was responsible for shaping the golden age of science fiction. He edited Astounding Science Fiction, which was later Analog, and actually was first called Astounding Stories before he was the editor. Mm. Uh, and that was the magazine that published Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Yes. We actually talked about John W. Campbell on those Mountains of Madness shows that we did because he was the author of the later somewhat similar story Who Goes There Yes, which was of course adapted into The Thing from Outer Space and later John Carpenter's filmed the, the thing. So that's Campbell. Now, one other notable thing about him was that he encouraged and published female writers in the pulps, which really wasn't done much at the time. Hmm. From 1939 to 1943, Campbell published a magazine called Unknown, which specialized in fantasy. And in this magazine, he introduced today's author, Jane Rice. She published a few of her first stories in Unknown, which actually had to stop its run after 39 issues because of lack of paper during the war. Mm -hmm. And given the incidents in this story, The Refugee, it's pretty appropriate that it was published in the very last issue of Unknown before the magazine was shut down. Rice went on to write for other magazines in the 50s and 60s, sometimes as Allison Rice, which was a name she used for her collaborations with Ruth Allison. Just before her death in 2003, at the age of 90 in Greensboro, North Carolina, she gathered her fiction, including including her 1995 novelette The Sixth Dog in a book called The Idol of the Flies and Other Stories, a 500-copy limited edition hardcover collection that she unfortunately did not live to see published. The book is now very hard to find. I do think Necronomicon Press published The Sixth Dog, that novel, on its mm. own. I'm not sure how easy that is to grab. But if you guys like today's story, there are some new tomes to go in search of because she's got a lot of other things out there. Just yeah. difficult to get a hold of. Well, let's get into the story. It takes place in wartime France, I believe. Yes. She doesn't out and out say it, but it is... It it's pretty heavily implied. It was published in 1943, and she makes references to the occupation. And the occupation would have still been going on at that time. France fell to the Germans and was occupied between 1940 into 44. In 44, the Normandy and, and Provence landings occurred, which allowed the Allies to stop that. But for those years, France was occupied by the German army. So things were pretty tough in France. Nazis occupying them, uh, folks coming in to fight them. It's tough. There's no war stuff in this story. Just a woman with no men around and and little food and niceties. Because the occupation in France was really defined by the shortages for the people. The Germans basically plundered the country. The thing that they did that was terrible is they made the French government pay for the whole occupation at an exchange rate that they decided. So <laughs> mi millions a day. Yeah. for them to be cut off from the world because they, they cut off all international trade with the Allies. No imports could come in. That also meant no fuel. France doesn't produce its own oil. So even within the country, nobody was able to get anything to anybody else, including the coal that was produced domestically. That wasn't circulating. All imports are shut down. People can't get things from other parts of the country. She mentions that there's no men and there's an extreme shortage, obviously, because if the men were in the army, they're likely either dead or they're being held as prisoners of war in Germany, which most of the French army was for the duration of this occupation. So there was no labor either for folks to be producing things. If you can put yourself in that place, all trade, supply, and commerce are totally shut down. All you have is what you can grow or what you can trade for based on what you might have already had or what you could loot. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a dismal, dismal time for the yeah. people in France. The protagonist of the story is a woman named Millie. Millie is an American who now lives in France. She talks about how her city became quiet one night. The mood changed, but she wasn't really sure why. 
And Millie was really annoyed with having to ration, saving all of her hairpins and her soap ends. She was a woman of some means, but in the wartime, she's just stuck with what she's got. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you have. There's just nothing available. And I think it was just unexpected to her that France would be occupied this way. She she was either in France for boarding school or maybe she was just living the expatriate life. Then she decided to stick around when the war kicked off because it was just really exciting to be there. America wouldn't have been in the war yet. For her, it was exciting to see all the men in their uniforms around and people wanted to know things about about what America was going to do, when they were going to act. And so it made her feel important to be an American. But now things have gone totally south and she's just waiting for a visa to get out. But it's a long wait. It's that Casablanca kind of thing. She's just stuck there till, you know, the right people allow her to get her visa and leave. She compares the city to a ghost now that it's occupied, but then she comes up with this different metaphor. She says, no, not a ghost, a cat, a gaunt gray cat with its bones showing through as it crouched on silent haunches and stared unwinkingly before it, like one of those cats that hung around the alley barrels of the better hotels or used to hang cooked. A cat bore a striking resemblance to a rabbit. So keep this in mind. Animals are in trouble in the city. If you're a a dog or a cat, you should probably invest in a fake mustache and an overcoat because otherwise they're going to find you, cook you, and eat you, right? (laughs) Right. And she also talks about how when she was a child, she had this game she would play. She would watch the streetlights in front of her house come on at dusk, and she would tell herself that if she never blinked until they all came on, she'd have a wish come true that she would determine, some kind of new doll or hair ribbon. And that's how she feels now. She's going through this period of pain, but she feels if she can just endure it long enough, she'll get something, a wish of some kind. Mm. I got to say, I was already really into the story at this point. It's just so refreshing to read some modern writing with normal flashbacks and normal character development. Her dad had a butcher shop in Pittsburgh where she grew up, and he invented some fancy cleaver and got super rich. And then he choked to death on one of his fillings. So (laughs) Millie got all the money, and Millie's mother was called to pastures greener than anything Pittsburgh had to offer while she was still a baby. So does that mean that she just left her and her father or that she died. To me, that sounds like she died, but you're right. It could be up to interpretation. Greener pastures than anything Pittsburgh had to offer. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, almost sounds like she just left town as opposed to the world. Either way, she had no mother. Her dad had this butcher shop. I think it's funny that she doesn't even know what her dad invented. Yeah. She says he invented a new deboner or meat cleaver or something. This is her whole inheritance comes from it, but she's not sure. Which shows that she's a tiny bit vapid, perhaps. We we get more of her character as we go along. Millie does have fond memories of the butcher shop and the meat there inside, especially Mm -hmm. because she's so hungry. And, you know, rationing is actually something folks talk about over here in the UK a lot. Mm -hmm. My my father-in-law, he says he remembers or at least... He remembers his parents talking about rationing. Yeah. And he wasn't born until 49. So rationing continued on well after the war. There was a rationing on petrol, gasoline, and that was 1950. Confectionery rationing on until 53. And then this is one that I remember him talking about, sugar rationing. Mm-hmm. And that was also in 53. And then finally, meat and all other food rationing ended in 1954. Wow. Well, it's definitely the rationing that's getting her to imagine that old butcher shop of plenty. Yeah. And she talks about how people didn't care much about the war as they cared about, you know, getting food. But fortunately for her, she had a stockpile of liqueur filled chocolates, which are better than gold. Better than gold. She was smart enough to stockpile those. And that's how she's she's trading. That's how she's getting everything she needs. She describes how she's also doing her best to keep up appearances, even though there's really nobody to keep them up for. And how she uses an iron to curl her hair, which makes this terrible smell. So even the things she's got to do to to beautify are in some way lower than what she expected or what she's used to. And she has some kind of housekeeper, Maria, who is the one who makes dinner and (laughs) she serves these terrible dinners and still insists she do it in courses. It says what they had for dinner that night was a potato that had gouged out areas in it, a limp salad and dried fruit. So pretty grody. (laughs) 
It is mentioned that she wore this wartime bracelet that was made of silver. And anytime silver comes up in a werewolf story, I'm listening. Missed it on the first read. What's a war bracelet, though? I mean, what does that look like? It has an airplane studded with rhinestones, a miniature cannon with gold leaf wheels, a toy soldier whose diamond chip eyes winked red and blue and green in the sun. And they were all on a silver chain. So it's like a chain with like little baubles, is what she says. Yes. There are a couple of flowery paragraphs about Millie looking out the window into her back garden. How the light is playing off the wet leaves from the rain. She says this phrase that I've never heard before. Millie looked at the rain intermingled with the sun and thought... The devil's beating his wife. <laughs> what? Yeah, that was what Savannah used to say back in Pittsburgh. The devil's beating his wife. Show enough. What does that mean? I, well, I believe Savannah was their servant, clearly African-American yeah. from the dialect. She's thinking about all the luscious pies and baked hams that Savannah used to make right. as well mm-hmm. while she brings up that phrase. But I was curious about that, too. So that is a real phrase to describe a sun shower, which is when it's raining, but the sun is also out. Ah. On Wikipedia, this is what it says. In the United States, particularly in the southern United States and in Hungary as well, a sun shower is said to show that the devil is beating his wife. <laughs> Or more rarely, the devil is beating his wife with a walking stick. So that one's a little more specific. And it's because the devil is angry. God created a beautiful day. And the rain is said to be his wife's tears. The sun's out. The day's beautiful. Makes the devil mad. He beats on his wife. And that's why we're seeing rain as, as well. Wait a minute. Who married the devil? I don't know. A regional variant from Tennessee is the devil is kissing his wife. In French, the, the phrase translates to the devil is beating his wife and marrying his daughter. So even worse. <laughs> In the Netherlands, they say that there is a fun fair going on in hell. That's great. In St. Kitts and Nevis, when rain is falling and the sun is shining, it is said that the devil a bang he wife. (laughs) (laughs) And in Liberia, it is said that the devil is fighting with his wife over a chicken bone. I'm still fixated on this devil got married thing. Did he just decide to settle down like his whole revolution in heaven didn't work out for him? So he's just <laughs> given up on his dream and he just kind of married this lady that worked with him or something in hell? Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. And then he's bitter about, you know, giving up on his dreams. Sure. So when he sees those beautiful days, he really lays into it. Wow. That was a bad choice on her part. For her to marry him? Yeah. I mean, she probably thought she could change him, but. Yeah, the devil can be pretty charming. It's true. As she's looking out the window through the hedges. Speaking of charming men. <laughs> Through the hedges comes this brown-skinned man, a buff, handsome, young man, shirtless. Yeah. She calls him a youth, but she later says she he seems about 20. Uh, she goes into some rather ribald description that takes a page from Robert E. Howard, I think. He was, Millie thought, rather like a young panther or a half-awakened leopard. He was, Millie admitted, entranced. Beautiful perfectly beautiful as an animal is beautiful and automatically she raised her chin so that the almost unnoticeable pouch under it became one with the line of her throat the youth was unabashed if the discovery of his presence in a private garden left him in a difficult position he effectively concealed his embarrassment he regarded millie steadfastly and unwaveringly and admiringly and millie like a mesmerized bird watched the rippling play of his muscles beneath his skin as he shoved the hedge apart still farther to obtain a better view of his erstwhile hostess. Confusedly, Millie thought that it was lucky the windows were locked, and in the same mental breath, what a pity that they were. The two peered at one another. Millie knew only that his hair was pasted flat to his head with the rain, and that his arms shone like sepia satin, and his eyes were tawny, 
and filled with a flickering inward fire that made suet pudding of her knees. Yeah, I agree. That's some Robert E. Howard stuff. So wait, is this Conan? It's, <laughs> it's possible that it's Conan. Is this guy Conan? Conan is in the garden, maybe. The guy and Millie lock eyes for a moment, but then mm-hmm. Millie hears her servant Maria going out into the garden, and the young man is just gone. Yeah, he disappears. Now, in that paragraph we just heard, there was something we never hear on the show, which is a character concerned about physical appearance, about their own vanity. Oh, right. It says she raised her chin so that the almost unnoticeable pouch under it became one with the line of her throat. And I, I couldn't believe it. She's turtling. Oh, yeah. Which is something that's kind of new to me. Uh Heather and I went to a a movie premiere a while ago. They had a red carpet and the people who had invited us said, hey, do you want to go get your photo taken on the red carpet? People generally don't ask you to do that. So I was like, heck yeah, we go, we get it done. They don't know who we are either. You know, you can tell the photographers are annoyed. Like, what's your significance? You know, Uh oh, HP Podcraft. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) But so we get done and there was another actor friend of mine whose publicist had sent him there. You know, like publicists will send people to these premieres to get their photo taken, whether they're involved with the movie or not. That's why he was there. And he was like, oh, you got a picture taken. That's great. Did you turtle? What What are you talking about? He said, it's where you extend your head toward the camera so that the double chin kind of goes away. Yeah. Just like a turtle would. Yeah. I thought, no, I don't need to do that. And besides, that's ridiculous. I turned around. I watched all the actors, even the child actors going through that line. All of them were turtling. Every single one of them. And I've been watching this every time I've been around an event like that. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody turtles. I'd never heard of it before. So I'm trying to disseminate that information to the public. Right. Folks, you got a turtle. When someone's going to take a picture, do what Millie did here. Stick your head forward. Did I'm going to confess to you right now. I've been turtling for years. You've been turtling for years? For years. Have you ever talked about it to anybody? No. Well, hey, man, it's okay. I'm turtling now, too. <laughs> what? On the show? Yeah, even while I record. <laughs> no, I didn't mean I'm turtling right now. Yeah, I don't want anybody to hear my double chin. If I'm not turtling, this is what my voice sounds like. You can also, if you press your tongue to the top of your mouth, mm-hmm. it'll also reduce your under chin baggage. But then what if somebody asks you a question, you're going to sound like Nell or something? Well, you can't. You can't when, you're, when you're getting your picture taken, when you get your picture taken, you can't uh, talk. You know, that's the thing. Just, What's that one called? I have no idea. It's just something I did that I realized, hey, that makes that thing under my chin go away. So, oh, okay. It's not working much anymore because I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the rest of my body's looking like a literal turtle, so... <laughs> That one little thing doesn't help. I empathize with this character's vanity. If I saw a naked guy in the backyard, I'd probably do the same thing. (laughs) Anyhow, as you said, Millie hears Maria, you know, who was outside, hears her enter the house. And outside, she hears some kind of dog howling. Millie's curious about the man. She goes to see in the garden if he's out there, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe he's hiding or something. And she looks around. She doesn't see him, but she does notice that there's a man's footprint filling with water. Maria comes in as Millie returns to the house, and Millie's kind of wet and has muddy feet. Millie asks Maria if she's seen anybody in the garden. Maria's like, uh, no. Well, I saw old Philippe outside. You know, old Philippe, he was on his way to the inn where he stays. But Maria hadn't seen anybody else. Poor old Philippe. I'm willing to bet, by the way, that there's not a young Philippe. <laughs> They're not doing this to differentiate him from somebody else. And he lost his yes. son at Avignon. He's a sad guy, so he's not going to be creeping around looking at windows or doing anything like that. No. Maria clearly feels bad for old Philippe. So she's saying, I hope you don't think it was him because he didn't do anything wrong. Millie stops asking Maria questions. She doesn't want to tell her anything about the man in the garden. She thinks that this guy might be a refugee. Right. And so she half suspects that Maria could be reporting things to the Germans. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't want to tell her about this guy if he happens to be a refugee or somebody who's running from them. Right. I'm sure everybody's paranoid about everything in this environment. She knows it's best for her not to get involved with any refugees. 
But right. she's thinking, although he was beautiful like a stripling god, <laughs> it really did something for her to just see him. I'm sure. And I think she doesn't want any competition as well. Yeah, sure. The day goes on and she just thinks about this guy all day. She doesn't say thinks about him. She says considered. She considered him all day. And I'm not sure if that's an innuendo or not. <laughs> it might be. You know? Well, even, you know, she's got this nightly ritual before she goes to bed where she slaps the bottom of her chin. That's an, yet another yeah. thing, I suppose, that she's doing to, to keep that double chin from coming in. I yeah. say stick with the turtling. There's no need to slap yourself. No, and that doesn't work. Normally that occupies all of her attention, but she's thinking about him even while she's slapping her chin. Yeah. At the end of the evening, she retires, uh, looks at the moon, lies down thinking about the youth. Then she hears the splash of water. She yells out, and it's Maria throwing water at an animal in the garden. And then Millie thinks that Maria is just being stupid. But then she realizes, oh, wait a minute. She might have seen the refugee and mistaken him for an animal. So Millie goes to the window, and she calls out. Wait! She called frenziedly into the darkness. Wait! Oh, please, wait! <laughs> this part I really thought was funny. Maria, thinking the command was for her, had waited. Although the police had aston astonished her somewhat. Yeah. Muttering under her breath, she had led her strangely overwrought mistress into the kitchen garden and pointed out with a partable pride the footprints in her mulch pile, padded footprints with claws. She goes, look, I saw great gleaming yellow eyes shining in the light. And Millie's a bit disappointed that it wasn't the guy. Right. She goes, oh, you know, it's probably the neighbor's dog. And Maria says, um, the neighbor's dog is a Pomeranian. Yeah, I don't think it was the Pomeranian. It wasn't the Pomeranian. <laughs> Millie's like, oh, whatever. And then just leaves. This, it was an animal, so it wasn't what she was looking for. Exactly. She goes to bed. The next day, Millie wakes up. Her room is bright. The narrator makes a little comment on how Millie's not maybe so attractive once the light hits her in the morning. <laughs> you know, before she puts her face on. You know, I know all you readers have been crushing on Millie a little, but now it's the next day. Uh-oh. This isn't what I thought I was getting into. <laughs> <laughs> she comes down for breakfast and she starts eating and realizes Maria's looking kind of rough. As she's kind of studying her, she realizes maybe that she's been crying. And then she goes, well, you know, I guess I should probably ask her why she's crying. <laughs> she does. And she finds out that old Philippe is dead. Uh. But not only dead, he's been mangled. Make a long story short, old Philippe had been discovered in a condition that bordered on the skeletal. Identification had been made through particles of clothing and a pair of broken spectacles. And Millie says, you mean to say he was eaten? Maria's like, ah, don't say that. Oh, it's my fault. I'm the one that's my fault. Maria says that since she threw the water on the animal, the ran animal ran off towards the inn, found old Philippe and made short work of him. Right. And Maria thinks it's a wolf. Because she scared it off. That's the reason old Philippe got it. Millie's like, a wolf? No way. It was a big dog. No wolves around here. Millie thought Philippe was probably better off than her because he didn't have to eat this horrible food that she's been stuck with. Right. He's better off dead than being in this occupation. She's still thinking about how to get her visa and get out. So she goes out into the garden and thinks about how great it would be to have afternoon tea out there. And what? He's there, lying on the ground, buck naked. Woo-wee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the guy. It's the guy. He's fast asleep. So first thing's First, Millie goes into Maria and tells her she can have some time off to deal with her grief. <laughs> you know, for Philippe. Uh, Maria doesn't look that gift horse in the mouth that she's out of there. Yeah, Millie makes some fast decisions here. I got to get this thing going. So <laughs> going to pretend I even care because she would definitely not have given her any time off. No way. If she didn't have other motives. Then she goes to the scullery closet and she grabs some pants that had belonged to a gardener who had been liquidated before he had had a chance to return for his garment. I don't know if that means that he had been fired <laughs> or... Somebody had killed him and he just couldn't get back for the pants. But she does happen to have some men's pants. Yeah. She comes back out into the garden. Guy's still laying there, but he's awake. 
And he doesn't seem scared or anything like that. He's just staring at her. She tells him to put them on. I'm your friend. So she waits. So she throws the pants to him and turns around to give him his privacy. Waits and waits. And she turns around. Boom. He's standing right there behind her. Does have the pants on. Mm -hmm. But he kind of looks like he's going to spring at her. She makes sure to quick get that chin up. She turtles. To try and gain control of the situation because she feels like he's sort of imposing. So she goes, Mm -hmm. what are you doing in my garden? And he says, sleeping. She goes, do you have any other place to sleep? He goes, yeah, many places. But I like this place. So what happened to your clothes? She says. And he just kind of shrugs. I'm not going to tell you. You're hiding, aren't you? And he goes, until you came out, I was simply sleeping. After I've eaten, I sleep until a short while before sundown. And then she looks a little surprised and says, you're not hungry. And he goes, I will be later. And then she addresses the elephant in the room. Aren't you cold going around without any clothes on? I mean, stupid to be running around at night naked. It's a wonder you didn't catch pneumonia. He says, ah, it wasn't pneumonia, but it was much better, old and stringy and without flavor. That's what he caught. The old man. I mean, come on. We know he's the werewolf, right? He's the werewolf. She's puzzled, but clearly she's got to have it. And if that means taking in this weird naked stranger, she's just going to make the best of it. Because she's getting it one way or another. She says, come on in. You can stay here until you're all rested up. She introduces herself. I'm Millie. But he doesn't return the favor. No. So she gets on his back about it. Surely you do have a name. He says, well, I've got lots of names, even Latin names. He finally goes, well, you know, people call me lupus, and that means wolf. She's like, okay, whatever. She thinks the wolf, well, what are you, some kind of resistance fighter? You know, the wolf? Like, because, you know, the resistance fighters aren't making things better. It's just making the Germans more angry, making it harder on everybody else. He says, oh, no, they're definitely scared of me. I'm kind of tired of talking to you, and I just want to go to sleep. (laughs) And she says, okay, but please come in. I don't want people talking about you out in the garden. He agrees, and he gives her a little pinch, but it's not a flirtatious pinch. Says it was the kind of pinch her father used to give chickens to see if they were filled out in the proper places. Definitely some big bad wolf stuff. She's totally indicating to the reader that he's the wolf and that she's just kind of fallen for it. And she was going to put him up in Maria's bedroom. But when he comes into the house, he just curls up on the floor of the parlor and goes to sleep. So while he sleeps, Millie rolls up her sleeves and starts working in the kitchen, taking everything she's got and fashioning the best meal that she can. Herself, she only has a light lunch because she doesn't want to spoil her appetite. This is going to be the best meal ever that she's going to have with this guy. She puts together some fairly creditable muffins, (laughs) uh, a dessert yeah. And a salad, yeah. which kind of seems like not a full meal, but, you know, rationing. It's what she got. And then suddenly Lupus is awake. She just lost time while she was preparing all this stuff. Yeah. He's like, hey, the sun's going down. I'm ravening. Let's go watch the sunset together. She goes, well, let me fix my hair. I have to. I must just be a mess. She says, I must be a sight. And he says, you are. <laughs> and I won't have to wait much longer. Yeah. Every All the languages, he's devouring her with an all-encompassing gaze. So everything is hunger-based about the way he's looking Yeah, but it. also very sexual. Yeah, and as a reader, I was feeling bad for her because I'm thinking, she's thinking some hot stuff is going to go down, right. and he's just getting ready to eat her. So she gets him to kind of sit. She pulls out some chocolates, and she's like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I got some chocolates here. Check these out. You know, I mean, she yeah. hasn't seen these in a long time. It doesn't seem particularly interested. But she kind of creeps over and starts rubbing his back. The old massage trick. Relax <laughs> him. And then she says about the massage, she says, do you like that? For a reply, Lupus opened his mouth and yawned. And into it, Millie dropped a chocolate. While at the same instant, she jabbed him savagely with a hairpin. The boy sucked in his breath with a pained howl. And a full eight minutes before the sun went down, Lupus had neatly choked to death on a chocolate whose liquor-filled insides contained a silver bullet from Millie Cushman's war bracelet. It had been, Millie told herself later, a near thing. And it would have been ghastly if it hadn't worked. But it had worked. Tra-la! Of course, 
stood to reason that it would. After all, if, at death, a werewolf changed back into human form, why, logically, the human form would, if in close personal contact with a silver bullet before sundown, metamorphosis into a wolf. It was marvelous that she'd happened to pick up the werewolf of Paris yesterday. It had given her an insight, so to speak, and it was extremely handy that she had all that butcher shop background. Millie wiped her mouth daintily with a napkin. How divinely full she was. And with Maria gone, she could have lupus all to herself. Down to the last delicious morsel. Whoa! It's a twist! Wow! She freaking ate him! I didn't see it coming. I did not see that coming. That is so rare. She really got me with that one. She got me. And it was set up throughout. They talked about how cats looked when they're cooked. Yeah. All the stuff in the butcher shop. Yeah. The food that she was preparing. Yeah. Classic misdirection where yeah. the, the prey becomes the predator. It's really well done. Good story. Great character. Have we talked about the werewolf of Paris ever? The novel she referenced at the end? No. Because I, it's something my, we might want to cover. People say it is the werewolf novel. It's from 1933. It was extremely popular. Oh, Okay. It's a fantasy novel, Mm -hmm. and it's about werewolves, but it's also got a lot of social commentary, political stuff in there. It's supposed to be really actually excellent, and I I don't think we've addressed it at all. So We'll have to put that on the list. We'll have to put it on the list. I mean, it's a novel. It's it's at least 300 or so pages, but... uh, Maybe next year, Werewolf History Month, we'll cover that novel. Oh, I'm just always excited if there's another werewolf uh, piece of literature that we haven't looked at. Yeah, me too. Speaking of, what are we going to do next week? The next story that we're going to cover is called The Other Side. Yes, by Count Eric Stanislaus Stenbach. I've never heard of this story. I've never heard of the story. It was also recommended to us by a listener, so we'll check that out. And if you have any recommendations for werewolf stories, we have one more slot available. We still need another werewolf short story for this month. And this is also our free show. So for the rest of the month, if you subscribe to our program, you will get three more shows every month for the low, low price of $6 and 66 months a quarter. That's right. It's cheap. It's good. And if you like the werewolves are going to keep coming at you this month. I want to thank Heather Klinky for doing our readings today. I want to thank her as well. Thank you, Heather Klinky. You rocked it. Good werewolfing. I'm glad it came out positive for you in the end. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Oh, hey, I want to remind folks to go to YouTube, type in From Beyond the Beyond, and watch Greg Johnson, myself, and the music of Reber Clark, rocking and rolling, doing Lovecraft funny style. Please go watch it. And that's all we have for this week, the beginning of our new and improved Werewolf History Month. Happy birthday, Chris. Oh, thank you very much. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. HP Podcraft.com. Ah!